While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And I'm Chris, filling in for Andrew. Hey, Chris, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here, even though I'm sad that Andrew's not here. I'm a little sad that he's not here, but we shouldn't be too sad because he just spent a week in St. Thomas. Where so, I'm sure he was reading books the entire time. I, I hear tell that he was reading books a good <laughs> portion of the time. Um, but I also hear that he was, like, eating mahi-mahi and getting drunk on the beach, so... Like, chasing chickens or something? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure there was live chickens that were running around there. I know he touched a turtle <laughs> in the in the ocean. He told me this today... I don't think he was supposed to, but... He, <laughs> I was going to say, on purpose? Or did yeah. it just swim by? <laughs> yeah, I think they were swimming, and a turtle showed up. So, of course, if you encounter a wild animal, you touch it. <laughs> uh, stay tuned till next week when we find out Andrew's side of the story. <laughs> and then the week after, we'll get the turtle on the call. It'll be fun. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we've been talking about this for a couple weeks. Andrew got married, and so he went away, and Chris was kind enough to volunteer to fill in, and he also suggested a Murakami book, which is something we haven't covered on the show, uh, and we'll get more into that a little bit later, but Chris, what kind of books do you like? Like, I feel like we're nearing 100 episodes of this show, people have a sense of just where Andrew and I are coming from and our general ignorance to books. I, I think, like, before this show started, I would have picked you to host a book show before me. <laughs> but asking what sort of books I like is like asking what sort of music someone likes. It's a very Well, and you will listen to question. anything. You will <laughs> listen to any type of music at all, ever. And that's sort of how I approach books. I go through phases with how I read. Like, I'll go through phases where I read a lot of literary stuff. And then I'll go off on a big, like, science fiction um, tear and just read a bunch of sci-fi and fantasy. And right now I'm actually reading a lot of nonfiction for whatever reason. Like, I'm reading a biography of Leonard Cohen. And I'm reading um, some Plato, the philosopher. I'm reading both him and reading about him. So, no, but a little why? bit of everything. Why would you read about Plato, Chris? I am <laughs> Leonard Cohen, National Treasure, I understand. He's Canadian, though. He's not a, na- he's not he's our a National Canadian Treasure. Canadian National Treasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he was in National Treasure. I don't <laughs> know for sure. Why Plato? That's an odd... I mean, you, you are into philosophy, I understand that. But yeah. why, why, why read Plato now, Chris? What does he have to offer us? He, I mean, are we going to talk about Plato on this podcast? Or are we going to talk about... <laughs> I could spend the entire episode talking about Plato, but maybe that's for another time. Well, I am equally as equipped to talk about Plato as I am to talk about Murakami, so <laughs> I think we'll be just fine. Uh, 
Do you have a favorite author, Chris? Um, I like Thomas Pynchon a lot, and I like um, Thomas Mann, the German author, a lot. When when did when was Mann writing? Mann was writing from probably like 1900 to about 1950 or so. Okay. He's one of those authors who I know existed, and that's about where my knowledge stops, and I kind of go back and forth between knowing that he actually wrote when you just told me to assuming that it was like 200 years ago. So, <laughs> I think his most popular stuff was around the turn of the century, but he kept on writing up through World War II. Okay. All right. So what book did you read this week, Chris? So I read, um, and this is a, a Japanese book, so forgive me for my pronunciation, anyone who knows more about Japan than I do, but I read a book called Colorless Tsukuru Tazaki and His Years of Pilgrimage by, by the whom? author uh, Haruki Murakami. Haruki Murakami. Had you read any Murakami? Who is this, this man? I've read a lot of Murakami, actually. Okay. He might be up there with my favorite authors, too. All right. Um, now, I know one of our listeners, um, I'm going to mispronounce their Twitter name. It's not even Japanese. <laughs> it's Murvedra, I think. Um, or maybe that's a Halloween name. I don't know. It's, it, I don't, I can't even say, uh, hash the, uh, at a housewife life. All right. That's who it was. Um, they said that the Murakami book has only been out since August and that they were surprised to find out we were featuring it on the podcast. Now I think we're doing it on the podcast cause you had read it and felt it fit the podcast, right? Yes. And All right. as opposed to most Murakami novels, this one's actually pretty short. Really? Yeah, it's, um, my copy's about 400 pages, but it's also a very small book. Um, like it's a hardback that's almost about the size of something that could fit in your pocket, so. Oh, like, okay, like chapbook size or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So I finished it in like a week or two. It wasn't a, a long read at all. Yeah, I guess by the time that I, as as someone who kind of falls in and out of following any sort of contemporary fiction, by the time I had a sense of who Murakami was, uh, 1Q84 was coming out, and Ooh. that's that. <laughs> it's like the yeah, the infinite jest of Japan. <laughs> yeah. So, what can you tell me about Murakami, Chris, as someone who's read a bunch of his books? Um, so Murakami, from what I understand, um, worked in a jazz club as like a yeah, twenty-something. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and he only and. I want to say he traveled to America or maybe worked in American jazz clubs as well. There's some connection to America. And then he only started writing in his 30s. Me? So a lot of his books actually have a strong connection to the West and to American pop culture. And a lot of his characters reference like jazz and rock music. And also figures like Shakespeare and Plato, which pop up all the time in like American and European literature, but I think is more exotic for... Japanese literature to be quoting these people. Mm. Yeah, I I think I read the anecdote his like his own personal origin story where he was like at a baseball game, he was 29 or something and some American came up to bat and like hit the ball and in that exact moment Murakami got an idea for a book. And that became like his first book, which is the first one in the Rat Trilogy, whichever one that is. And so um, he got really into American stuff because an American was at bat? Like, No, I, he had already been reading, you know, like 
Western writers like Vonnegut and Kerouac all his okay. life. But it was that moment where he was like, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> and both of his parents were literary professors, so it's not like he was just uh, some sort of, you know, I don't know, just like... I don't, I don't, I don't want to say without being disparaging to, to someone, but it's not like he was someone without an interest in literary fiction. Yeah, I'm sure he had an, an education in this sort of stuff before. And yeah. my understanding was he was a bit of a hipster, that even if he wasn't writing, he was sort of hanging out in jazz clubs and getting in with that crowd or whatever that crowd was in Japan. Yeah, because he was born when? In 1950? Something? Yeah, He's like 65. right after the war. Yeah, so it's post World War Two Japan, which I don't even can't even fathom what that is. I know, I think it was Norwegian Wood, his second or oh, maybe his third or fourth book that uh, referenced like the Japanese youth movements in the '60s, mm-hmm. which were a combination, I think, of like progressive and kind of concert like communist leanings i'm not sure i uh, researching murakami is like a lot of episodes of this podcast where i encounter a whole (laughs) part of the world that i feel like i should know about and i'm trying to do it in like two hours on an afternoon on the weekend (laughs) yeah and i don't know that much about japan or japanese history besides murakami so actually i don't know if he's like indicative of what all japanese literature is like or if his characters are like very alien to Japan, I just sort of my my understanding of modern day Japan is through Murakami because he's really the only one I read. Interesting, yeah, because I did want to ask you a little bit about that with regard to the book. Well, I guess we'll find that out because uh, he's been simultaneously seems sounds like he's been simultaneously embraced and critiqued in by the kind of old hands of Japanese fiction writing whoever you know yeah as bad as it sounds whoever they are because i don't know who they are um but it's not like he came out of a writing community he didn't come out of like a in the way that a lot of the 20th century american writers have had their cliques you know or someone now who says you know a writer coming out of iowa or something like that where you can kind of trace their lineage Mm -hmm. but he also apparently his books being being in the first person is kind of a style that emerged in the turn of the 20th century in Japan. But in Japanese, he mixes and matches which pro, like pronoun, be it the formal or informal, which is one of those things that English just doesn't care about. Yeah. Um, which sets him apart. And like you said, all of his Western references and trappings mm. seem to set him apart from... I don't know more classically Japanese writers. What to whatever end that is? As as two people who are not Japanese, we can't attest. I don't know. I don't think we can say what that is. <laughs> I have read, um, and again, this isn't through experience, but just through my own sort of research. That so a lot of Murakami's novels have sort of a protagonist who's a loner, lives by themselves, maybe doesn't get out a lot, and it's sort of I don't like a self-contained individual. And okay. This is not rare in America. That's sort of all our protagonists are the loner, tough guy, emotionally reserved type. Yes. But my understanding is in Japanese literature, it's a little different um, in a culture that 
very much values community and being part of a family unit and that sort of thing, that it's actually rarer to find these sort of protagonists that don't exist as part of some sort of larger community. Yeah, and I wonder, hmm, I'm sure there are all sorts of lar- like really way too big for this hour-long show questions about why a culture develops that mindset. Um, I mean, on one hand, it just seems distinctly uh, an Asian, like various Asian cultures seem to have that where a number of Western cultures do not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. Specifically, American culture is like, yo, you did that thing that you set out on your road trip to do. Yeah, or it like goes back to the cowboy thing. Like, yeah, you went out there in the desert by yourself and found yourself and did got the bad guy and did it all. It was all you. Yeah, go America. And the, <laughs> go America. Put on your cowboy hat. Let's go. <laughs> well, and I guess I wonder too if there's also something about something inherently American dreamish about like, well, it doesn't matter where you came from, you can still get yours. Mm-hmm. Where like, which. It doesn't explicitly disavow family, but it it definitely does not assume family. Um, I guess in America, you can always run away, or at least for a long time, you could go west and keep going west. And Mm -hmm. maybe for like an island culture, there's less of that and more like, well, I guess I'm stuck here with my family. So That's a good point. Ooh. Well... Keep keep in mind that our country was founded by someone running west from where they came from. So, <laughs> uh, I suppose we should stop talking about America in a show about a Japanese author. Uh, what are your impressions of other Murakami books before going into this one, Chris? Like, what are you expecting as a fan of Murakami? What are you anticipating will happen? So, his books, well, they generally have this sort of male protagonist sort of a loner maybe lives by himself in the city and then usually weird things start to happen um define like like magical realism sort of stuff like things outside the realm of what we usually would consider the realm of possibility okay is that like way too elaborate coincidence or is this kind of like no it's like fantastical creatures or experiences yeah, it's like the fantastic. So in his last book, 1Q84, it started with a guy looking up and seeing there were two moons in the sky. Okay. And no, and no one else could see the two moons. And so for a while, he's running around trying to figure out why he's seeing two moons. And it gets stranger from there. Okay, okay. So you're are you expecting that coming into this book? How much did you know going in? Yeah, I, I was expecting that. And actually, this book doesn't have there are elements of that but there's not as much of the hardcore like magical stuff is going on as some of murakami's other novels okay this one is i don't want to say more realistic um because none of his books are like fantasy novels there's there's not like yeah. people riding dragons or something like that but there's <laughs> it's more grounded in our sort of i don't know in the popular sense of reality okay so, so who is this man? Why we're in the book now? This why is this man colorless, and why is he going on a pilgrimage? Okay, so Sakuru Tazaki. Um, when the book starts, he's in his mid thirties. I think he's about thirty six years old. Okay, and he designs um, 
subway stations and train stations. And he's sort of reflecting back. He's just started seeing another, um, or he's just started seeing a woman and he's telling her about his childhood and growing up. And the first few chapters are all sort of a, a flashback about this story. Okay. So Sakura Suzaki, growing up in, I guess, the Japanese equivalent of high school, um, had four other good friends. And again, I'm probably going to butcher these names, but his friends Just, were... Oh, yes. Go for it. <laughs> well, their nicknames were um, Aka and Ao were the his male friends in the group, and Shiro and Kuru were the female friends in the group. And okay. the five of them were pretty much inseparable. Like all through high school, it was that five was the tight group. And um, whenever one of them did something, they all did that. And they didn't really hang out together outside the group. Like if two people started to do something, they always invited the other three. Okay, cool. And he is colorless because his four other friends have names with colors in them. Oh, okay. And I don't know... This gets in the translation issues, but I guess um, so. His friends have last names that mean red pine and blue sea and white root and black meadow, and he's the only one. His name means builder, so oh. he's the only one in the group <laughs> of the friends who has no color associated with his name. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, and they talk about it. They sort of like jokingly in high school. It's like, oh, it's Sakura Tazaki. Colorless Sakura Tazaki. No. <laughs> the only one with no color in his name. So they're hanging out. Um, and then when it comes time to go to college, Sakura Tazaki is the only one who decides to leave their hometown. They all live in a place called Nagoya. And he wants to go to Tokyo for college because they have the best program in like train station engineering. He's always wanted to build train stations. Okay. When do you... Wait. Does it say why? Like, when in his life did he decide? I don't know. Early on. Like, he's like six? He's I mean, like... it's it's definitely a major plot point that he loves train stations. Like, he likes to stand and watch train stations. And his name means builder, so he sort of thinks of it as like a destiny, that he wants to be a person who builds things that other people use. Okay, okay. But yeah, it is sort of a weird thing for well... a kid to want to be. Yeah, it's just kind of it, you have to take it as a given. It, it's oddly it's, specific. Like it I'm is. not just I want, I want to, to be an architect. Stations. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he wants to go to Tokyo. His friends yeah. don't want to. Mm-hmm. And they all promise to be best friends forever, of course. And he goes off to Tokyo, and his freshman year, everything is good. And he still comes home every so often, and they all spend time together and things is just like it was. And then I think during his sophomore year, during one break, he comes home and he doesn't hear anything from his friends. And he tries to call them up one at a time. And for the most part, they won't even talk to him or they'll put their parents on the phone. Then they'll just say, um, they're not available right now. They won't talk to you. And he finally does get a hold of his one friend. And his one friend just says, none of us can spend time with you anymore. And we can't talk to you about it or why this is happening. That sounds terrible. Yeah. And then that's sort of like the, I guess, the turning point in his life. And he sinks into a big depression. And he hasn't really had a real friend since that. 
Okay. And now he's 36 and he's sort of reflecting. I mean, he's past it. He's no longer like eaten up inside, but he still sort of has this old wound, like whatever happened to my four friends and why did that happen? Yeah. And so that's like the first, that's the couple chapters of of the book that kind of set that up. And he's telling this story to this woman. Yes. And that's the, yeah, I guess the mystery that kicks everything off. Okay. And and the woman is saying, well, I don't think you've ever fully processed this. And I like you, but if you want this relationship to go anywhere, I think you need to sort out what happened with your friends and come to peace with what exactly happened. Oh, man. Is this their first date? It's it's <laughs> one of their first couple of dates. <laughs> let like, me go to this great pizza place that I know. I'll take you out. Oh, let me tell you about this time where all of my friends decided not to be my friends and like not tell me why. They're not even going steady at this point. Like this is not an exclusive dating situation. This is you like... won't wear my Letterman jacket, but I need to tell you about the time that all of my friends abandoned me. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll get the check. It's fine. Yeah, I've I've had a nice time. I'd love to see you again, but you need to clear up 18 years worth of emotional baggage before. <laughs> That's really harsh. Well, like, I mean, I guess in a way he needed her before he was going to go do that. But yeah, maybe I think... he he needed a buddy. <laughs> she thinks she's doing him a favor, I think. Sort of. Of course guy... she does. <laughs> And in many ways, I guess she is. And I I get the feeling that he's not normal in mainstream Japanese culture, that he sort of has no close friends, and he doesn't really... He has a family, but he doesn't really spend any time with his family or seem particularly close to them. Okay. And I think he just sort of hangs out by himself and looks at train stations, so... Well... <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing on Friday? I'm just going to go sit at the subway stop. I'm going to watch these trains go by. All right. Well, we can't hang out with you anymore. Because <laughs> we are not trains and you love trains, I guess. <laughs> and so, yeah, deep down, he wonders if he was always the the colorless one in the group. Um, I guess metaphorically as well as um, through their names. If he was yeah. the one that no one really liked or the one that just didn't have anything to offer the group. So, like, if there was a Power Ranger who did not have a costume or did not have his own, like, giant robot. Yeah. yeah, Or one who did, but just was a pretty lame. <laughs> like. <laughs> what is your giant robot? Mine's a tiger. Mine's a dinosaur. Mine's a slug. <laughs> I have a giant robot slug. It's not even giant. It's, like that desk over there are sort of like you know like the the wu-tang clan and there's <laughs> yeah there's some members of the wu-tang clan that you cannot have the wu-tang clan without them like you need them to be at the reunions like if if, if method man isn't there then you don't have the wu-tang clan but there's also these members that are technically part of the clan but do you know any other like i know ghostface killer i know him He's an integral part of the clan, I think. But, like, Capadonna, I think, is one. <laughs> you don't know them because no one, no one knows them. My, I will admit that most of my experience with the Wu-Tang Clan is uh, Shaolin, Wu-Tang Shaolin style. 
which was a PlayStation game <laughs> where it was a fighting game starring all of the Wu-Tang Clan members. But who did you play as? Usually Ghostface, Killa, or Raekwon. Yeah. I've never heard of Capadonna before. Or um, Inspect the Deck is another one. That... And that seems like one I've heard of, but maybe, uh, maybe just because it rhymes, I assume, <laughs> that I've heard it before. So he, like, yeah, okay. He thinks he's like the the Capadonna of the group, or like the Ringo <laughs> Star of the group, or something. Okay, <laughs> to use a reference that we might uh, have more familiarity with. I don't know. Then again, it sounds like you know the Wu Tang Clan's <laughs> roster in and out. So, yeah, may, okay, maybe Ringo is a a better example. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm sure that. Murakami, with his deep uh, appreciation for Western music, could could have made that analogy if he wanted as well. Yeah, yeah, he'd probably do it with like a jazz band or something. But you're the I don't, can't even name like unwanted drummers from jazz quintet. I wish I could. <laughs> what a deep cut that would be. All right, so he so what is he going to do about it? He leaves this date that he this terrible date that he went on. Okay, and then I'm trying to so the book is structured with him thinking about this and going out to find his friends, but it's sort of interspersed with some flashbacks about the time he spent with his friends, and then a little bit of time he spent in college as well. In college, he did know one person who he sort of drifted away from. Okay. Um, and he remembers some stories that he and his friend in college used to tell each other while they would sit around and drink beers. Um, and that's where some of the magical realism comes in. So he remembers this story that um, not even a friend, but an acquaintance in college told him about a man who could see colors on people. Okay. As in sort of like a a halo surrounding a person. And this is coming to him like third or fourth hand. It's Tsukuru Tazaki is remembering, oh yeah, my friend told me a story that his dad told him about this guy at a hotel once who said that he could see colors on people. That's very shady. That's the, I don't, Mm. okay. And this is why I'm saying it's more realistic than Murakami usually is because in past Murakami novels, the guy who sees colors would probably be like the main character or something. <laughs> and in this one, it's sort of through a string of stories that you don't quite believe sort of passed along. So it thematically it's fitting in, but it's not anything really integral to the plot. Okay. What to give an example, what is that guy who sees colors story like about? How does that feet like thematically? What, what is that resonating with in the book? Um, so the guy who sees colors is also going to die. And okay. he's also an expert jazz pianist. Yep. And he he states that he can only see colors because he's going to die. It's something you get shortly before you're going to die. And he says Sounds that, like the giver. What is okay. <laughs> and it is like that because if he wanted to, he could pass along this gift to somebody else, he says. Okay. And they would then have the ability to see colors as well, colors around people. Um, yes. But <laughs> not, not like the giver, not like the color of an apple. <laughs> okay. But then you also have to die if you have this ability to see these colorful halos around people. 
And he's also a very good pianist, and he carries around a little bag that he never opens. And whenever he plays the piano, he puts the bag on top of the piano before he plays. And he will not divulge what is inside the bag. Okay. <laughs> Am I supposed to extract meaning from the bag? Well, that's, that's the thing for Murakami. You're not quite sure. No. It was, and this was, I mean, it was actually nice to, because I read this book a couple of weeks ago and I was sort of flipping through it for this podcast and a lot of things that you read the first time, you're like, well, that's weird. <laughs> Looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get what he's going for now or I see how well, this fits is, in. What is he going for then, Chris? What is he going for? <laughs> Feel free okay. to, to paint with a broader brush. Okay, so so throughout the book, and and rein me in here if I'm going off too far or something. So no, you're fine. But so as an example of how Murakami sort of weaves these themes in and out. So throughout the book, there's a lot of references to hands and fingers. Okay. Um. So Sakura Tazaki and his four friends consider themselves as like a a hand. They were a group of five that were always together, like the five digits on a hand. That's a wonderfully poetic thing that, like, as you say it right now, I instantly think that it is far more, it is far more fitting in a piece of Japanese literature than, <laughs> than, than Western literature. You know what I mean? That seems like there's, I don't know. It seems like it came out of like a koan or something. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. It's like haiku-esque. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you have that, and people keep bringing that up. And then one day when Sakura's at work, one of his coworkers comes in for building a train station and says, oh yeah, once when I was digging up um, to build a train station, I found a little bottle in the ground with vestigial fingers, like an embalming fluid, buried far underneath the ground. That's gross. Yeah. And then they go into this big conversation about how it must suck to have six or seven fingers and people who do that might cut them out. Um, ah. But <laughs> but maybe you could be a better pianist if you had six or seven fingers, but maybe not. Maybe no. five fingers is the, the perfect number of fingers to play the piano. And towards the oh. end of the book, Sakuru thinks back on the story of like the piano player in this bag he always carried around and wonders if perhaps... That once upon a time, this piano player did have seven fingers and cut off the two fingers he didn't need and carried them around in a bag for the rest of his life as a talisman when he played piano. Why do I need extra fingers in a bag <laughs> so I can play well? That's like a reminder that, yo, don't forget your other fingers. <laughs> or like magic or something. I don't because he can also see colors. Okay. So okay. I I guess like the the whole takeaway or the whole thing I took away from this is it's just meditations on what is either like friends or fingers like how many things should be in a group is it ever appropriate to cut things out of a group what is the price you do if you do that what happens to the people who are cut out of the group are they really superfluous or did they maybe contribute something to the group that you didn't no was there until it was gone oh but it's okay. never really like laid out it's just all these weird finger stories are being thrown around throughout the book <laughs> there's a there's a baseball pitcher who i think has since retired 
I wish I could remember his name, but his nickname was El Pulpo, which okay. I believe means the octopus, because he had a sixth finger on his pitching Whoa! Hand. And it was it didn't do anything. <laughs> it was gross. It was just there. Ugh. Is that how he became a pitcher? Like, because he saw he had a six finger and decided, well, I might as well get a job that requires me to use my hands. I don't think it gave him like a magic pitch. Like, he was a relief pitcher. He wasn't. So he wasn't like rookie of the year or something with a. (laughs) No, it was not like the magic tendon from rookie of the year. (laughs) (laughs) But who knows? Maybe it like created a unique drag on his hand as it moved through space and changed the way the ball left his palm i don't know <laughs> who knows okay so there's so there's the theme of like what a group is what belongs in a group what happens if you remove things from that group yeah like and mostly with friends sort of this idea that within groups of friends everyone has a role to play and with like great groups of friends and ones who get along sort of you play off each other so well that everyone contributes their part and you don't even realize how everyone's fitting into this role. Hmm. And so you have a lot of flashbacks of him thinking back to him and his friends in high school and how one was like the, the comic relief and one was the emotional support and each role that he and his friends played as part of this tight group. How well does the book... Or how well does Murakami kind of flesh out those other guys? Are they really kind of presented not as one-dimensional in a, in a pejorative way, but do they get to have a little complexity? Or are they like, that was the comic relief guy. Oh, crazy Black Meadow always playing pranks. <laughs> you know? Well, it's it's hard to tell if this was a deliberate choice or not. So we meet the other friends, but we only see them as... <clears throat> young people through Sakuru's eyes. So we only okay. have his memories of what they were. And then later right. throughout the book, he does meet up with each of them as older people. And we get to see sort of who they've become, but we'd never see firsthand who they were back when they were all a tight group of friends. Okay. That's smart. So they are fleshed out a little bit. Like one guy became a car salesman and he sort of fleshed out as, um, and apparently this is like a, a good high-class job in Japan. Everyone talks about how impressive it is that he became a car salesman and he sells Lexuses. Nope. Lexi. Lex- Lexi? Yeah. Lexis? Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but another one became like a corporate consultant and sort of like a slimy one too, like a guy who sells weird consulting packages about new management techniques for your office. And hmm. so he sort of talks with Sakuru about how his life brought him there and he would have been really sad as a kid if he you told him he was going to grow up to be a corporate consultant and so you get a lot of characterization from these people reflecting on who they've become are the, are most of them defined by their careers or or have some of them gone like family man path or That's anything like that funny you should say that um because the, I wasn't the last... making a joke. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because the last person he visits actually has moved to Finland. Um, huh. She married a potter who was in Japan for a while. She met at a pottery class, and they live in Finland together. And so that's, I guess, the 
the climax of the book is Sakura Tazaki going to Finland to meet with this final friend and sort of get the <clears throat> the last piece in the puzzle of what happened. Okay. Does does he get closure? Does he understand? Does he ever like find out? Like, did a thing happen or? Yeah, you find out fairly early on why his friend stopped talking to him. Oh, really? Yeah. And then his first friend tells him that. Like, the, he meets up with the car salesman, and the car salesman said, yeah, this is what happened. And so each oh. other friend then fills in another, like, perspective or another piece of the puzzle about how stuff went down. Interesting. Okay. That's cool. Hmm. Does Is it a thing that... Uh, he has to accept like blame for or accept responsibility for or is it just kind of he just comes to terms with what happened yes to both (laughs) (laughs) do you want do you want me to make like an explicit spoiler tag here so that you can talk about it i don't how much do you want to know about what actually well now i personally want to know okay and we've been talking for over half an hour about this book now, so I think if people are, by now people should know if they're interested to go find out themselves. So turn off the podcast now? If... They can pause it and then <laughs> and read go the read book. the book. <laughs> and then, if they haven't read it already, and then they can uh, start it up again. They can, like, burn a CD of the podcast. <laughs> And then, like, press pause in on their disc man. All right. Spoiler alert. Chris, okay. tell me what happens. Spoilers are coming. So okay. it turns out that Shiro, who is one of the females of the group, um, came to the other three members who were not Sakuru and claimed that Sakuru drugged her and raped her one night. Ooh. And they all decided to cut him out of the group. Did he, do we know if he did that? Uh, no, he did not. Well, he did not do that. He has no memory of doing that. Okay. However, throughout the book, he does have a series of sexual dreams about this person. And he sort of always has, even back to being in high school. So huh. he learns this and sort of feels guilt about it anyway, even though he knows he did not actually rape her. Mm, but okay. he starts to feel guilt sort of about the emotions he always closeted and hid it's like maybe i was in love with her maybe because we were friends i never actually wanted to express my sexual feelings for her and so things get complicated pretty fast hmm. it's another one of those weird murakami things where there's sort of a connection between his emotions and what happened in the real world but not like a direct one-to-one correspondence yeah because even then Okay, so assume that he did do it and just doesn't remember, well, then he's being betrayed by his own memories, Mm. right? Or if there's some middle ground between what she told people and what actually happened, then it's fuzzy. Yeah, that's a really thorny cloud of ambiguity. Yeah. where But you totally... hmm. But those guys probably think they did the right thing and by many accounts they did yeah it's one of those situations i guess you never really want to be in yeah and and actually well and it's also complicated because the person who claimed that she was raped 
then was later murdered later in her adult life. So she's no longer in the picture, and Sakura can't like meet up with her again and say like, "What happened?" or "Why yeah. did you say that?" Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I don't have a. I don't have a response <laughs> to that. So you, but you said you find that out pretty early in the book, or you find out like part of it earlier in the book. Yeah, you find that out fairly early in the book. Um, okay. The first person he meets. And then the first person he meets also sort of apologizes and says, like, in retrospect, maybe we should have gotten your side of the story, but we were, like, 18 years old, and we didn't know what to do, and our friend came to us and said this happened, and so we cut you out of the group. Yeah. And so then the rest of the book is sort of untangling, because in every group of friends, then there's sort of people who are closer, or like, different sets of relation, a web of relationships within this group of friends, and it's him sort of sorting that out. Yeah, it's not like he just, like, strolls up to each person's house. I imagine there are a bunch of, like, ancillary characters yeah. that tie them together. Yeah, and, like, magical stories about fingers and stuff interspersed in between <laughs> each meeting. Is there, are there, how many finger stories are there, Chris? There are, Please tell me there are five. There might, there's at least three <laughs> that I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. And I guess, um... And Shiro, one of the members of the group, was a pianist, so I guess maybe that could count as a fourth finger story or tie into the finger motif. Sure, sure. All right. I guess we're we're coming out of spoiler town <laughs> if people are checking in. Um, as someone who's who's read a bunch of other Murakami, Chris, like where does this fall for you? Where is it kind of different? Where is it more or less satisfying? This one is actually way more introspective and has a lot more character development than some of the other Murakami I've read. Okay. Like, a lot of his other books are huge, and all sorts of crazy things are going on, and there's two moons, and secret races of little people, and... (laughs) Wait! Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Did we read the wrong book? Wait, you gotta tell me... Is this is this QT in eighty four? Yeah, this is yeah QT in eighty four. Is which what is the your preferred pronunciation of that title? I go with one Q eight four, but okay. my understanding is it's a pun on nineteen eighty four that doesn't work in English. Yes, because of because of like the similarities between the letter Q and the letter nine. Yeah, it's supposed to be like mystery eighty four or something like that. Ooh, I like that title better. <laughs> I like that title way better. It sounds like it's the 84th in the mystery series. Mystery 84. <laughs> oh, I would, I want to start. Man, if I could make like a, a big movie franchise out of like with no prior career leading up to it, <laughs> I would totally start like with number four. Oh, God, that'd be great. <laughs> Why are there little people in QT84, Chris? You know, I read all thousand pages and I couldn't tell you. I don't know. Okay. And by little, you mean like I mean like like literally little people. Okay. Like borrowers? You don't quite know what they're about. 1Q84 is a weird (laughs) book. This book also, Colorless Sakuru, has way more closure than 1Q84. Okay. Um, not everything is wrapped up neatly, but he sort of reached the end of his emotional arc by the end of the book. 
Whereas okay. in other Murakami I've read, a lot of them end on cliffhangers or without really tying anything together. Hmm. What is there anything about this book that you think either gets lost in the translation or anything that kind of shown despite it being in translation? Because he's doing all of his tra- is he doing all of his translation himself? No, someone else does it. Okay. And there's, I mean, there's always some prose that you're never quite sure if that was the intent for Murakami or if it's because of the difficulties of translation. And, yeah. Um, this translator I've noticed has just sort of decided to deal with the fact that everyone knows it was written in another language and just be very direct about that sometimes. So he'll mention huh. a name like, um, uh, so his friend Aka, that actually means red or akamatsu has the word for red in it and it'll just say rather than like trying to make a quirky translated name like redman or something it'll just say akamatsu which means red in japanese oh really it'll just say that like in the prose of the book yeah that's smart okay it doesn't try and pretend like this was actually written in english i heard something the other day about how in all of the different languages of the harry potter books they have to change Tom Rit- Tom Riddle's name to make it line up with whatever that language's version of I am Lord Voldemort is. Oh, no. So, like, in French, his name is something weird because you have to say Je suis Lord Voldemort or something. <laughs> oh, that's bizarre. Sorry. But you still know. need, like, a working class first name in order for it to work. Yeah, it can't just be, like, just we like what's a what's a pompous French name, Chris? Like Pierre? Is that you? Just we Pierre <laughs> Voldemort. Voldemort. Wait, that's not how it works. <laughs> Just we Pierre Enigma. That's not. It's not the same. And how would that work in languages that don't use the Roman alphabet? Like in Jap, in the Japanese translation. How do they do it? I oh God. I wonder if they have to like take whatever i mean i don't know how you say voldemort in japanese <laughs> it might be easier to change voldemort's name and yes it might it might be i don't know anyway murakami i guess yeah you don't have to deal with that in this book because there's no pretending yeah. and there's a few but other you... times where they'll just say like so and so which is the which is the local high school or it'll explain japanese terms like that hmm but you still think like the prose gets a has a consistent and enjoyable for the most part voice? Yeah, but it is um I won't say clunky, but it is sort of direct and to the point. Mm. And I wonder yeah. also because he's a popular author and I think these books there's a lot of pressure to translate them quickly once they're written in Japan. Yes. And I wonder if it's much more workmanlike. They just get someone to sort of translate it by the book as quickly as possible rather than spending a lot of time figuring out what the perfect word in English would be. Yeah, I I wonder what... I know... I don't know much about how that type of industry goes. I'd be interested if anybody who's listening... Clearly, if you're listening, you either enjoy this nonsense or you actually care about books. Um, If you're involved in the book publishing industry and and have a sense of, like, the timeline. Because I wonder if a translator is perhaps getting... Are they getting earlier drafts? Are they getting, you know, probably not. But yeah. That might be that might be one way to do it. That's interesting. 
I read a I read a book years ago that was originally in Spanish, um, and the protagonist was like a not quite a teenager when the book starts, and when it was translated, it it had that kind of Dawson Dawson's Creek like this is way too smart sounding for a kid <laughs> like inner monologue because it because of how it it had been translated into English, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it didn't quite match up with the character narrating. Like whoever um, translated didn't know enough to distinguish different to- the tone the tonal shift between different generations and how they Yeah, talk. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always tough. All right. But you you dug this book more you think more than other Murakamis that you already have enjoyed? I liked it more than 1Q84, I think. Okay. It's it's not like top-tier Murakami. Um, in a lot of ways, it's more traditional than a lot of his books. Um, but I I think this one would be a good introduction for someone who's read no Murakami. Okay. And if this is too weird, then don't go any further, because it only gets <laughs> weirder from here. <laughs> if it's not weird enough, and they want like the purest uncut Murakami weirdness, where should they go? They should go to 1Q84. Okay, but if they want maybe not the weirdest, but <laughs> perhaps the highest quality, where should they go? Um, Hard-Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World is a good one. Is that one of his first ones? Is that in the Rat Trilogy? I don't think it's a Rat Trilogy, but I think it was sort of his breakout hit. Okay, okay. Um, And the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, I think, is one of his best ones as well. Oh, okay. And he's he's written some like short fiction stuff too, right? Like he wrote some short pieces after the, it's like a, after the quake or something. Is that book? I think. Yeah, and he's in the New Yorker every so often. All right. Um, and I think he's written at least one nonfiction book on um, that cult of people in Japan that launched poison gas attacks in the subways. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think he wrote, he wrote uh, he wrote a book about is it about running or is it about bike riding or jazz music or something? <laughs> he is a runner and a jazz aficionado <laughs> it's, it's called like what we talk about when we talk about blank and i can't remember is he the one who started that no it was a riff on someone okay. else's i feel like i see things on the internet titled that every other day like what we talk about when we talk about lena dunham and stuff like that you won't believe what happened when murakami <laughs> talked about jazz music <laughs> I'm going to look this... Oh, God, I wish I could remember what it is. Nope, that's not helpful, Wikipedia. I don't want to know just about the character, Merc. Oh, man, this is wonderful radio, this is. (laughs) What I talk about when I talk about running. There you go. All right, so I was right. Glad we sorted that out. (laughs) I did not know about that one. Interesting. All right. It's like I I read a book by David Byrne all about bike riding. It was weird. Did he talk about music at all or just bike riding? Mostly bike riding. (laughs) Mostly bike riding and the different cities in which he's ridden bikes. That sounds like it could be a good series of books. um, Professionals writing about things outside their area of expertise. Yeah. Yeah. I'd want to know about... I want a book by Daniel Day-Lewis about that time he learned to be a carpenter and (laughs) told everyone he wasn't acting anymore. (laughs) And then he came back and won two Oscars, so... <laughs> I thought he was a cobbler. That's probably right. I don't know. Someone was... I don't know. You can build a, a shelf out of shoes. <laughs> if you're Daniel Day-Lewis, you can. If you're 
<laughs> you and I could not. <laughs> I, I, I build your shoes. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So if you wanted to build a shelf out of shoes for us, you could uh, email the eBay link to us at overduepod at gmail.com. You could tweet pictures of it to twitter.com slash overduepod or, or post them on facebook.com slash overdue pod i want to thank uh lee and uh nada morconi and uh laura and muvedra who i referenced earlier um and someone else on our facebook page gave us a shout out i don't remember who uh but yeah we like it when you guys reach out to us on social media a bunch of people uh wished andrew well on his wedding um chris and i can attest that it was pretty cool it was a good wedding. Well, it was pretty good. Chris, do you know offhand where people can go if they wanted to find out more about our show? Uh, they could go to the website, overduepodcast.com. That's correct. Do you? <laughs> what else is there? Do you know what else is there? There is a Twitter. Okay. Uh, OverduePod is the Twitter. Yeah. I, do, I told them about the Twitter and the Facebook. What else is on the website? Oh, uh, well, you Pop can quiz. find you can find what you're reading next. Which what are you reading next? I think Andrew read Gone Girl oh. on his break. So, we'll probably talk about that. I'm wrapping up a Michael Chabon book called Summerlands, which I'll probably do on the show. That one fits in the uh it's overdue cuz it's been on my shelf for <laughs> 3 or 4 years and it's by an author who's quasi well-known. Mm. Um probably more than quasi. He's he's the Cavalier and Clay guy. So, um, yeah, and you can also find links to the to these books on Amazon, uh, which you can use to help support the show if you buy those things, um, as well as our, what else is there, our RSS feed, so you can subscribe to it if you don't like iTunes, but if you do like iTunes, you can subscribe to us there and maybe leave us a review, which is how more people find us and more people subscribe to us. Um, Chris, thank you so much for doing the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I hope you had a good time. Yeah, I hope I didn't talk about fingers too much. No, I think you talked about fingers the right amount. We don't have like a finger quotient on the show, but maybe it, based on today's discussion, the quotient is either too high or too low. We need to find, we don't want to have extraneous fingers, but maybe they were there for a reason the whole time. Maybe you'll miss them when they're gone. Maybe I will miss them when they're gone. I'll miss you when you're gone, Chris, from this podcast in <laughs> like two minutes or whatever. <laughs> I, I started saying that sentence and it sounded like a threat and I needed to <laughs> fix it. <laughs> uh, and thanks everyone who's listening. Thank you for listening. And we'll, uh, you'll hear us next week. And in the meantime, try to be happy. Thank you.